Good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, It's good to have you with us. And we have copies of that book that was kind of being promoted there, Love Story, The Myth That Really Happened. We want everyone uh, to take one away. And what we'd love you to do is have a look. It'll take you about, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes to read it, maybe 30 minutes. Have a read and then think of maybe there's somebody else that this would be helpful for. Someone that, you know, you could pass it to, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, the coffee table at work, whatever. We'd just love to get it out to, to kind of intrigue people, to get people thinking about the real meaning of Easter. In fact, yesterday, a group of us went out into Chippenham, and, and we were kind of doing a survey type thing, and we were asking people, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Easter, and who is Jesus from your perspective? Those kinds of questions. And we got the kind of answers you would expect. Uh, First thing that comes to mind, chocolate, eggs, bunnies, spring, bank holiday, everything's shut, that kind of stuff. But also some people did kind of come out with more meaningful answers. They they said, oh, it's it's about Christianity or it's about Jesus. It's about uh, Jesus rising from the dead. And then when we asked about Jesus, the kind of answers we got, again, fairly typical, were, well, Jesus is a good man. Jesus was a philosopher. Jesus was a historical figure. Jesus was in, the, in that book. You know, it's that kind of vague answer. And then a, a couple of people had a, a slightly clearer view. But I wonder what our perspective would be if instead of being 2,000 years later and looking back, what if we were there? What would our perspective be if we were eyewitnesses of the first Easter? I suspect all the ideas of myth and fairy tale would fade away very quickly. If we were there, we would have seen the real reality of it, the fact that it actually happened, that Jesus actually died on the cross, that he literally physically rose from the dead, came out of the tomb, and could be touched and spoken to and interacted with. And one of the people that was there, one of the eyewitnesses, was a man called Peter. And Peter was absolutely gripped by what happened that first Easter. Peter was a normal fisherman, probably fairly brawny and hardworking and probably quite a vocabulary. He was a fisherman who was on the Sea of Galilee doing his business, getting on with this hard work day after day, night after night. And Jesus came along and invited him to be one of his followers. For the next three years or so, Peter was with Jesus he heard him teach. He saw him care for people. He, he watched him perform miracles to give sight to the blind and to make deaf people hear. And, and, and they, he saw Jesus being so caring with, with people and yet so strong and so bold with the religious leaders, calling them hypocrites and challenging them. And, he, and Peter watched all of that. And over the course of three years, he was gripped He was captivated by this Jesus. This man was was different than anything he'd ever met before. There was something that was so real. It was like Jesus was the most living person he'd ever met. And then it came to a point in that first Easter week where Jesus was with his followers, his disciples. They were in the upper room and and they'd done the the bread and the wine and what we call the Last Supper, you know, sort of think of communion. Jesus had washed their feet and they'd gone through all of this stuff. And then Peter said, it doesn't matter what these do. I will never deny you, Jesus. I am sold out 100% committed to you. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, 
before the cockerel crows tonight, you will deny me three times. Never, never. But he did. And so here's this man who was so gripped by Jesus and so uh, kind of brought along over the course of those three years that he felt like he was the man to follow Jesus no matter where he went. And yet he couldn't make it through the night, staying faithful to Jesus. The next morning, uh, Jesus, having been tried overnight, was led out to be crucified. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, what Peter was feeling at that point. After everything that they'd gone through together and and now he denied Jesus and and now Jesus was being led out to die. Now, technically, this shouldn't have been a surprise. Jesus had explained this multiple times to his disciples. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. Uh, I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. But somehow, it didn't quite connect for them. And so in the midst of all the confusion and all the emotions and all the the fears and all the kind of swirling feelings, there was Peter knowing that the Jesus he loved, the Jesus he had denied, was now the Jesus that was dead. That must have been the longest Saturday ever. Hiding weeping, waiting, wondering, praying, who knows what they were doing. And then Easter Sunday morning. Some women had gone to the tomb. They'd gone to keep on working on Jesus' body to kind of prepare it for full burial. And when they got there, they found the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away and Jesus wasn't there. And they came back and they told Peter and John and the two of them raced off. And John tells us that they ran sort of side by side. They ran together, but John got there first. Uh, I love that little detail. But then Peter finally arrived, caught up with him and flew through that door uh, like he couldn't stop. And he got into the tomb and he saw the cloth, the linens that had been around Jesus's body. And he saw the face cloth that had been over Jesus's face, neatly folded in, in its own place. And Jesus wasn't there. The body was not there. Like, was the body stolen? Didn't look like it. And then he met Jesus. Like, literally met Jesus. He was able to speak with him. I'm sure they would have talked about what had happened on the Thursday night, the denials. Later that day, Jesus met with the disciples, 10 of them at least. Thomas wasn't there uh, and Judas was gone, but, but the 10 of them were there and Jesus came and stood amongst, amongst them. And the following week, Jesus came again and now there was 11 there. Thomas was there and he, he got to see Jesus with his own eyes. And then later on, Jesus was on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. We read about that in John 21. And Peter got this special conversation with Jesus right there by a charcoal fire. Multiple times over the next few weeks, they met with Jesus. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't a sort of depression-induced hallucination. It was multiple times they met with him. They saw him out in, in public. They saw him in private. They saw him during the day. They saw him in the evening. They saw him first thing in the morning. They enjoyed food together. They had conversations together. They touched him. This wasn't a hallucination. Jesus was really there. He was really alive. Death was really defeated. Just a few weeks later, Peter was in Jerusalem, gripped by the reality of the resurrection. And he stood up and he preached. 
We call it Pentecost, the, the, that first great moment where the Spirit of God came on the people of God and it became the, the church. And, and Peter preached, and in the middle of his sermon, he's saying to all these people in Jerusalem, you crucified Jesus. It was God's plan, but you did it. And he was buried, but death could not hold him. And he rose from the dead. And and he declared that to all these people that just weeks before he was petrified of. Death could not hold him. And I suppose we could look at that and say, well, okay, if, if Jesus rises from the dead, then for a season it makes sense that these people would be a little bit excited about it. But hang on a second. Are we really saying that if Jesus actually rose from the dead that somehow that reality would fade, that somehow it would sort of grow old and become a a past thing? Well, I want to prove to you that it didn't. I want to show you what Peter was talking about at the other end of his life. So fast forward 30 years. If you want to grab a Bible, there's Bibles around. Uh, Feel free to sort of pass them back and wave your hand in the air if you need one, and we'll get one to you. But I want you to see what Peter wrote Okay, about Christianity, about life. This is literally three decades later, 30 years later. And Peter is writing to some Christians and he's kind of explaining to them how they can have hope in the midst of their sufferings. Okay, so 1 Peter, it's on page 1014, I think. Is that right? Yep. 1014 in the Black Bibles. It's the first letter that Peter wrote that we have in our Bibles. And we're just going to look at one paragraph, starting at verse 3. Verse 3, Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pause there. Here is he's starting his letter. And what's the most important thing that he can say? What's the first thing that he wants to write about? It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's saying to them, look, praise God, because in his mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Well, think about that phrase. We've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the key. That's the, the, the kind of the, the focal point that stirs everything. For 2,000 years, Christians have used the phrase born again. I'm a born again believer. Maybe you've heard people say that. What does it mean? Well, basically what it means, it's, it's saying that my life, the life that I have in this world can never amount to the life that I was designed to have. The the life in relationship with God, a life completely fulfilled and, uh, and living out all that I was created for, I simply cannot achieve it. I can't get educated into it. I can't get... Uh, promoted into it. I can't be moral enough to be uh, kind of judged into it. There's, There's no way that I can, in my life, get to be what I'm supposed to be. And that's why Christians talk about being born again. It's because we are not good enough. It's because we know that there's no way for us to make our lives what they should be. 
and we need a completely new start. Jesus had a conversation with a guy called Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the most impressive person you could ever meet. He was educated, he was powerful, he was impressive. I mean, literally, he would, he would have been at the top of any pyramid, any social pyramid in Jerusalem. And he came to Jesus and said, oh, let's talk about the kingdom of God, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, we can't. If, if you're not born again, we can't talk about the things of God. Nicodemus would have thought, what in the world? Like, I, I'm the ultimate person. You know, I'll be humble. Maybe there's someone better than me. But I'm really, really impressive. And yet this Jesus is saying that I've got to go right back to the very beginning. I've got to have a new life that I don't have. That's bizarre. And Jesus was able to explain to Nicodemus how it was possible. And it all boiled down to this. Nicodemus, you've got to put your faith in the Son of Man. You've got to trust what God has done for you. He even talked about the Son of Man being lifted up, describing himself on the cross before it happened, and saying to Nicodemus, if you will trust in my death on the cross, if you will trust in God's provision, then you can have life, but you can never earn it yourself. And then we get that famous verse, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has done it. In his mercy, he has provided a way for us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's never about us. And Peter, 30 years later, can't help but say it. He's, he's got to get that in right at the start. That's what changes everything, folks. That's what it's all about. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And we've got hope. I love kind of the enthusiasm that comes from him. I mean, an enthusiastic 20-year-old is kind of normal, right? Not Maybe not as normal as it used to be, but, but an enthusiastic 20-year-old, you sort of understand that. But an enthusiastic person in their older years... That's actually quite a blessing, isn't it? You think, wow, look at that. It stood the test of time. This thing that they're passionate about, it's still there. And Peter was still passionate about the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, you would be, wouldn't you? If you'd seen it with your own eyes, if you were there, if you were gripped by the reality that death did not have the final word. What an amazing thought that is. Just think of all the great people that have ever lived, the, 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 the most intelligent people, the most influential people, the most powerful people. Think about, uh, if you like, the sort of the dictators, the Hitlers, you know, the people like that. Think about the good people, the people that have done good, that have changed society, that have abolished slavery, that have uh, given women the vote. All the great things in history that have happened, that should have happened, as well as the bad things. All of these great people and all of the teachings and all of the philosophies, all of them have one thing in common. That ultimately, death has the final word. Doesn't matter if they're good or bad. Doesn't matter if they're great or insignificant. Everybody who's ever lived in this world in the past is now in the same place, same position. Death has had the final word, except for Jesus. Because when Jesus came, 
He came willingly to go to the cross to die a death that he did not deserve. And he laid down his life. He, he breathed his last. He said, it is finished. And he died there on the cross of his own free will. He chose that. That was what he chose to do. But then Peter preached on Pentecost. Death could not hold him. Death did not have the final word. Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says Jesus swallowed up death. Isn't that an amazing thought? I think about it from our perspective. Doesn't matter how great or insignificant we are. Doesn't matter how hard we work or how hard we work out or how well we eat or how much we say, forget that, I'm just going to eat what I want. It doesn't actually matter how we live because we know that ultimately death is going to have the final word. Except death doesn't have the final word. Jesus has defeated death. Which means what Peter says here, through the mercy of God, we can be born again to a living hope. Isn't that amazing? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Bernard Langer, remember him, golfer? Bernard Langer said these words, to a Christian, Easter Sunday means everything. Because it is when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday means everything. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And then he goes on to describe that hope. He says, verse 4, it's to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. You know, Christians are, are people of hope. We, we may not see it because we're living in a very comfortable society, but down through history, Many, many Christians, in fact, across the world, even today, many, many Christians are ready to lay down their lives because they know that this life is not all they have. And what people discover as they capture and torture and kill Christians is that they cannot snuff out the hope that is in them because death is not the final word. And so even if a, a Christian is beaten and tortured and, and led out onto a, a hill or a beach with a camera on them and the, the masked person there ready to take their life, what they discover is that they can take their life, but they cannot take their hope because Christians are able to lay down their lives. They're ready to say, okay, kill me. If you want to kill me, kill me. But you cannot kill the hope that I have because when you kill me, you're just going to send me into the presence of Jesus. And that's where my inheritance is, and that's what I'm living for, and that's what it's all about. Ultimately, it's not about this, it's about that. And, you know, if one person kind of stirred up a really rousing speech in the face of death, you might say, well, that's impressive. But consistently, consistently across the world, uh, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, powerful, insignificant, Christians face death with hope. Whether it's martyr's death, whether it's old age death, whether it's in a hospital bed or a hospice bed or their own bed, whatever the circumstances, consistently Christians are able to face death and step through because they know that there is life for them after this life. 
that death is not the final word, that there's something still to come. And maybe you're sat here this morning going, well, I don't feel that. I'm scared of dying. I'm doing everything I can to sort of elongate my years. But, but ultimately, we all face death. And according to Peter, who, by the way, died a very nasty death, fully gripped by the hope that was kept in store for him. According to Peter, we're born again to a living hope. That is, there is something beyond this life. It's what we call heaven. It's where Jesus is preparing everything for us. That's not just stuff. That's, that's more than stuff. That's the relationship that Jesus has always enjoyed with his Father. He's preparing to, to hand us the full experience of that relationship. He's preparing to welcome us in like a bride to her wedding like a child coming home. He's preparing all of that. And so Peter says, you know, that inheritance is imperishable. It can't be lost. It's uh, undefiled. It can't be spoiled. It's unfading. It can't rust away. What Jesus is preparing for us in eternity is certain. It's real. It's more real than the lives we're living now. Isn't that beautiful? And for those of us who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, that is where our story is headed. That's the hope that we have. But you might say, well, fair enough, that's all very good, but you can't prove that, right? You can't see heaven. You can't kind of give evidence for heaven really, can you? So is that just kind of vague hope, religious hope, silly hope, unfounded hope? Is that just pie in the sky when you die, that kind of idea, that, that in the future it's all going to be great. But, but now, what about now? Actually, Peter says, in this hope, you rejoice. But then he talks about the now. He's not unrealistic. He's not inviting Christians to put on kind of plastic smiles and pretend all is well and happy, happy, happy when actually life is kind of miserable often. And so he goes on to talk about life now. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's trouble. Now there's difficulty. Now there are trials. Actually, we know that, don't we? We know that uh, in terms of the extreme, when we see the news, not so much the television news, they tend to not tell us about it, but, but we, we see news from countries where the Christians are really absolutely up against it. Northern Nigeria, Syria, Iraq, um, North Sudan, China, North Korea. I mean, there's Christians in North Korea in concentration camps simply for being Christians. We, we can't get our heads around that. And we go, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's trials. But actually, we experience trials too, don't we? Sometimes it's just the, sort of the mundane little stuff of life, the, the hassles when things don't work right. And you go, oh, this is so frustrating. I just bought this and now it doesn't work. And, and it's silly, isn't it? When you compare it to what other people go through, you say, come on, what is my problem? It's just a drill or something, you know, but, but it can feel like a big deal. But then there's seasons in life when life really seems to be hitting us. 
when we're really struggling. You know, when we're grieving the loss of a loved one or we're, we're struggling with our own selves, our own uh, identity, our own choices, the things we've done, the things we've not done. We're, we're feeling completely overwhelmed by that. Maybe it's not our fault, but other things have happened around us or other things have happened to us. And actually you go, forget the drill that doesn't work or the meal that gets burned. I'm actually really struggling. Peter is recognizing that. And he's saying, yeah, now there are trials. Now we do go through tough times. And yet we have a living hope. I love that he put the word living there, don't you? We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Because ultimately every trial that we're facing, whether it's of our own making or it's being imposed upon us, whether it's minor or whether it's kind of fatal, you know, whatever the trial may be, death does not have the final word. As Christians, we are people who have hope. And our hope is in Jesus. If he can conquer death, then he can carry me through this. If he can conquer death and defeat the grave, then what I'm facing, no matter how difficult it may be, is not too difficult for him to carry me. Which is why this born again to a living hope that Peter describes isn't simply in this life um, characterized by trials. Notice in verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love Jesus. I think that's one of the most powerful things for somebody who's kind of looking at Christians from the outside to, to kind of get their heads around. Because, okay, we sort of understand, you can understand church, that's nice, that's a nice place to go. You know, people get on nicely, they're kind to each other, that's lovely, it's like a good social club. But actually, what you discover when you talk to Christians is that they love Jesus. And that's kind of hard to explain, isn't it? You've never met him. He was on earth 2,000 years ago, and you love him. (laughs) What's that about? And it's not just kind of the the wishy-washy, kind of nice, sappy type of people. Sometimes you meet people like Peter, like hardened, tough, rugged people. And then when you talk to them, they'll tell you, I love Jesus. And you go, what's up with you? The Bible explains it. In fact, we've got the the vision of our church for all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. You see, what we discover in Jesus is the love of God, the love that the Father and the Son by the Spirit have enjoyed together for all eternity has spilled out to us. It's come into our world in the person of Jesus. And now, when we become a Christian, when we look at what Jesus did on the cross and we say, okay, I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to stop trying to fix my life and and do everything my way and turn things around. I'm going to stop my effort and I'm simply going to trust in what Jesus has done. What happens is the Spirit of God pours out God's love into our hearts. And and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Suddenly, we we love Jesus. Suddenly, we find Jesus to be the most compelling person we've ever uh, come across. And even though we haven't seen him, we love him. So you talk to Christians and you, you, you ask them, get past the conversations about church and so on, and get to the heart of it and you'll discover that a true Christian is someone who truly loves Jesus. Why do we love him? It's because he loved us first. 
It's not something we muster. It's just a response to what he's done. And so here we are with this living hope in this world, in the midst of all these trials, we love this Jesus. And then he says one more thing. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Bible doesn't hide from the reality of trials. It doesn't hide from the reality of how bad life can feel how tough life can be. But what it invites us to is to come back to the Easter story, to come back to the cross and the tomb and to find that both of them are empty. That Jesus went to the cross and he died for us and he went into the tomb, he was buried, but he walked out, he's alive. And as we come to the cross and we come to the tomb, what we discover is Jesus. Not there, not stuck in that place, but alive, in, uh, alive today and by his spirit tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, I know what you're going through. I know how tough life is. I, I know how, how hopeless it can feel. Been there. In fact, I've been there for you. And so now I want to offer to you my love demonstrated on the cross. I want to offer you my joy in conquering death. I want you to to become part of a people who have a love that doesn't make sense and a joy that you cannot explain. That's what Christians are. They're nothing special in themselves. They're simply people that are gripped by the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. And as we trust in him, God in his mercy births within us a new life, a life that is spilling over with love for Jesus and with joy, even in the darkest of times. I love the fact that Peter says in verse 8, the joy that we have ultimately is inexpressible. Oh, we can, we can sing and we can smile and we can celebrate, we can maybe lift our hands, we can do all that kind of stuff, but we can never express enough the joy that is birthed in us. Because Jesus died on that cross. He was buried and then he rose again. Death is defeated, which means no matter how tough life may be, Jesus understands. Jesus has already conquered the ultimate enemy. Jesus is able to carry us through it and he wants us to let him do that. He wants us to enjoy relationship with him, to accept his love for us, And to experience his joy in us. 